Chronicles. This is Mariana here with my co-host Jonah. How's it going, Jonah? Good. Ready to talk Bundies. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited. I like these guys. I mean, I like the story. I don't like <laughs> these guys at all. <laughs> these guys are my idols. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Oh, Disclaimer, so, we don't so, like these um, guys. Th- <laughs> right. Yes, yes. We don't like these guys. But so, yeah. So this is the Bundys versus BLM part two. Uh, today's episode is part two of the two-part series on the conflict between the Bundys and the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, please go back and listen to part one uh, because it will give you the background you need to know for the conflict. Uh, it's really important that you have that background or else uh, much of this won't make as much sense. Uh, but we will do a quick review from the last episode uh, since it's been, I think it'll be a week. Well, anyway, we'll do a quick review from the last but we'll do a quick review from the last episode um, just to kind of debrief or, um, on what we talked about last time. So, firstly, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service manages the Endangered Species Act. And under the Endangered Species Act, most listed species are afforded critical habitat, which is land protected for the recovery, not just the viability, but the recovery of that endangered species, endangered or threatened uh, one of these species is the Mojave Desert is the Mojave Desert tortoise, which was listed as threatened under the ESA Endangered Species Act in 1990, and has been afforded 6.4 million acres of critical habitat in its range, including a large chunk of federally owned land in southern Nevada, which is relevant to the story we're talking about today. So that's the Mojave Desert Tortoise. We told you all about the ecology and biology of the Mojave De- Desert Tortoise last episode. Um, it's a really cool animal. Uh, it's, I would call it a habitat specialist, um, and it's very sensitive to disturbance. And it's threatened, so it's important to protect it. Anyway, the, the Bureau of Land Management manages most of the critical habitat land for the desert tortoise in southern Nevada, Uh, this particular area that we're talking about today. The BLM is a federal agency responsible for managing grazing, mining, recreation, power lines, and other areas of natural resource consumption on federal land. And these powers include working with the Fish and Wildlife Service on critical habitat integrity. The BLM also manages grazing permits for cattle on federal land, mostly through grazing allotments and always with grazing, uh, right, and always with monthly fees. We also talked last last episode a bit about public land designations. So federally public land technically belongs to the American public. It's in the public trust, but it's managed by federal agencies and it comes with inherent protections and restrictions. If you want to use federal public land, which you can, you have to know what you're allowed to do based on the land's designation, the agency managing it, and the specific area you're visiting. So Owned by the American public does not mean that you can just do whatever you want on the land. You have to abide by federal law. And we're saying this because it's important for today's episode. Um, also just important in general to abide by those laws because it's all about uh, conservation of the land. Last episode, we also briefly, men- very briefly mentioned the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, which is a closed hydrologic system. And it's an important region for the conservation of waterfowl and migratory birds. And lastly, we also told you a little bit about the Bundys, Ammon, Ryan, and Cliven. Uh, they are a long line of cattle ranchers from Nevada who have been the agents of two armed standoffs with the federal government in recent years. And today we're bringing all of that, everything we talked about last episode, together 
to show you how the Bundys versus the BLM is the perfect example of how conflicts can escalate on a human-wildlife interface where conservation is most important. Yeah, so there is a lot to say about the Bundys. Um, these guys are real pieces of work. Mm-hmm. And if we really wanted to delve into the nuances of the Bundy philosophy and just their ancestral distrust of the federal government and the report they received from sovereign militias, we wouldn't really ever get to the heart of the conservation issue we want to talk about. So if you want to know more about those specifics regarding the Bundys, we definitely recommend a podcast called Bundyville from the Oregon Public Broadcasting. Um, It came out last year in the wake of the Malheur standoff in Oregon. And it's just, it's really good journalism. So we highly recommend it Mm -hmm. um, to learn about more of the details about this, um, this story. But what we want to talk about today are the species and the habitats that the Bundys have put at risk in their decades long crusade against the federal government. Yeah. So Cliven Bundy, is a cattle rancher from Bunkerville, Clark County, Nevada. That's 80 miles northeast of Las Vegas near the Arizona border. Uh, He does not consider himself a citizen of the United States. He considers himself a citizen of Clark County, Nevada. The Bundy Ranch, uh, which Cliven Bundy owns, encompasses 160 acres of private property, which is surrounded by federally owned lands managed by the BLM and the National Park Service, Uh, 190,000 acres of that public land abutting the Bundy Ranch is critical habitat for the threatened Mojave Desert tortoise. So that's a lot of land. Um, 160 acres of property for a cattle rancher isn't actually much for a cattle rancher. It it sounds like a lot, but cattle need a lot of a lot of room to roam, which is one of um, the issues that we have with them um, on conservation land. And so Cliven Bundy does use his private property for his cattle grazing, but also mostly uses the federally owned lands around his property to graze his cattle. And from 1973 through to 1993, Cliven Bundy lawfully paid his grazing fees to the BLM for running his cattle on the federal land around his ranch. 16,000 ranchers pay their fees faithfully every year. Uh, The BLM usually does not have much trouble collecting fees from these ranchers. They are law-abiding, and they are given allotments in which they can graze their cattle. So um, a cattle grazing permit from the BLM also provides an allotment, and we spoke more about allotments last episode, but that's that's land, that's federal land on which um, you can graze your cattle. So... After the mo- and uh, Cliven Bundy had an allotment um, on which to graze his cattle, which is why he paid grazing fees. So after the Mojave Desert Tortoise designation, the as threatened under the ESA in the early 1990s, the BLM had to enact new restrictions to Cliven Bundy's grazing permit, and these new restrictions included limiting his access to the land around his ranch because it was now critical habitat. Um, include and also included limiting the amount of cattle he could graze and the times of year they were allowed in. I couldn't find which times of year that were, but I'm guessing um, it they must have been times of year that are critical for the for um, the tortoise. Um, so like spring, um, things like that. 
So uh, because a tortoise really depends on um, a plant life um, that arises in the spring from a good winter, from a good wet winter. So anyway, the purpose for this, for the new restrictions that the BLM enacted on the Bundy's grazing permit was to minimize the impact of cattle and their grazing on the Mojave Desert tortoise. But Clive and Bundy didn't like these new restrictions. Um, he actually didn't uh, believe that it had anything to do with the Mojave Desert tortoise because of his distrust for the BLM, but it did. Everything had to do with the desert tortoise. Uh, he didn't like the new restrictions. He shot back at the BLM that the land around his ranch, federal land, was actually his land by ancestral rights. Um, <laughs> so that's what he believes. That's what he continues to believe. So in, in 1993, he did not renew his permit because of the new restrictions, and he stopped paying his fees, which would be fine. You don't have to renew your permit. You don't have to pay fees if you stop grazing your cattle on BLM land. But he didn't. So since 1993, Clive and Bundy has continued to allow his cattle to graze over 600,000 acres of public land without paying his fees. So by the time the government finally brought his case to court in the 2010s, and there's just a lot of history there, um, it just it, the court system works really slowly, and also the it wasn't really a high priority case for a long time. It is just there's a lot of complications, but they finally brought his his case to court in the 2010s, and by that time, uh, because of his lapse in payment, he owed 1.2 million dollars in overdue grazing fees. So he owes the federal government a lot of money. Um, as of this recording in February 2019, Cliven Bundy has not paid a cent of that overdue money. And we will talk more about that, that later, too. <laughs> I also just want to add that how you said that he's continued to he continued to allow the cattle to graze over 600,000 acres, which is more than three times what he was paying for previously. Yes. He was yeah. paying for 190,000 acres before, now 600,000 acres. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's he, like his he, ancestral right uh, enlarged somehow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of that land, like he just he just believes all that land is it belongs to him. So. Must be nice. Um, yeah. If you so, if you read articles about the Bundys, and even if you listen to that podcast Bundyville, which is great mm -hmm. in all regards, the desert tortoise is sort of either a little footnote, or it's just not even mentioned. You know, it's it's not really in our day and age. It's not sexy news to talk about protecting a tortoise that people maybe never heard of, or people that are maybe, or maybe that people will never see. Um, and of course, talking about armed militias and over a million dollars of debt to the federal government is just a much more interesting story to the public. Um, but for us, and like we keep reiterating, the Mojave Desert Tortoise is at the center of this story. Um, so like we explained more last episode and like already has already been mentioned, they're really sensitive to human disturbance and just a lot of, they have a lot of anthropogenic threats. Um, like urban sprawl, habitat degradation, climate change, just to name a few. And then, like I said last time, there's also cattle, which I hate because I think they're at the center of so many issues mm -hmm. around the entire world. Um, and in the case of the desert tortoise, they 
actually have been shown through research to even directly kill tortoises by stomping on them, particularly on juveniles who have soft shells. And that's just like a really, a really sad yeah. thought to think about I these know. stupid, uh, I would consider useless animals just doing. Anyways, um, <laughs> I hate cattle. I hate livestock. <laughs> um, but cattle also, in addition to this, sometimes directly killing the tortoises, they also collapse their burrows. They trample their eggs. Um, they erode the soil that they would use to burrow. And they also just consume or even destroy the forage that the tortoises might feed on. And even in light of admittedly much more serious threats like um, urbanization or climate change, there's very good reason to keep cattle away from desert tortoises. It's important for ranchers living around desert tortoise habitat to minimize their impacts as much as possible, even while they're still permitted to use the natural resources, like if they have grazing allotments. You know, like we've said, just because you have the right to use this land doesn't mean you have the right to do whatever you want to this land. Yeah, and the desert tortoise, um, we talked to more about them last episode, but I can't remember if we said or not that, you know, not only are they a burrowing animal, they use burrows as, uh, you know, uh, micro refuges and just to live. And they actually spend, I think they spend like 90% of the day in their burrow. Uh, but they also lay their eggs in little um, nests that they dig in the, on the surface of the ground. It can be like, I think, I think they can be a couple feet deep, but they're not in the burrow. They're on the surface of the ground and cattle can step on that as well and do trample over nests um as well so so yeah um so establishing the problem with cattle and their impact on the mojave desert tortoise um we are going to um wait hold on okay we're gonna start talking about the uh, more about the bundies and why that's important so with not only land regulations in mind, but also the desert tortoise, the BLM f- finally decided to physically seize Bundy's cattle. So this is after decades of Bundy's cattle trampling all over Mojave desert tortoise critical habitat around his ranch, not paying his fees, disregarding the courts, which specifically told him more than twice to cease and desist, give him cease and desist orders. Just all of that, the BLM finally, after all that time, decided to physically seize Bundy's cattle and started wrangling them into pens in April of 2014. So not too long ago, despite this all starting in 1993. What most people who watched all of this uh, happening in the news will remember, um, if you watched all this in the news, which a lot of people did in April 2014, the Bundyville um, cattle wrangling, um, what most people will remember was that in the first few days of the BLM's wrangling efforts, Ammon Bundy, the most famous of the Bundy sons, and I'm pretty sure he has like 14 children, Ammon Bundy was tased by the police after kicking a patrol dog. Now, if you watch this footage, you'll be on one side or the other. Um, if you watch it from my end of the perspective, um, he, uh, he approached the patrol dog himself and kicked out at it and then got tased. Um, so in response, um, an armed militia 
Um, a bunch of armed militiamen saw this video and they came to Bundy's defense from from not from from even states outside Nevada, a lot of western states, a bunch of militiamen just flew in, came to his defense because they believed that um, the federal agents were using too much force and they mobilized at the Bunkerville Ranch to intimidate the BLM agents who by this time were joined by the FBI. So it was becoming such a problem that the FBI jumped in and um, we're not really going to talk about the FBI. You can hear all about it in the Bundyville um, podcast. It's really interesting what happened there. But but the, the actual BLM agents who were wrangling these cattle, they weren't armed, but they were faced by an armed militia. So after several days, the feds had no choice but to back off to try to avoid violence. And they released the cattle they'd managed to wrangle, 300 plus cattle they'd managed to wrangle between the 5th and the 12th of April, 2014. So over those few days, they managed to wrangle that many cattle, but they had no choice but to just let them go. And in response to that defeat, the feds brought charges against Clive and Bundy, his sons, and a few of the militiamen. And the case that, that those charges, they moved in and out of the court systems for a couple of years with not much to say for it until 2016. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Keep in mind that all the while, since the 1990s, in fact, an Endangered Species Act threatened species has gone without complete protections and the study and research it needs in the Bunkerville area because of the Bundy's hostility um, toward the BLM. Yeah, so then um, two years later in 2016, the Bundys were at it again, but this time in a completely different state. So they were at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Harney County, Oregon, which we've sort of alluded to before. Um, and so for context, about 70 75% of the land in Harney County in Oregon is federally owned either by the BLM, Fish and Wildlife, Bureau of Reclamation, or the Forest Service. And Harney County is also a ranching community, and the relationship between the feds and the ranchers has been overall a beneficial one for the last 100 years or so since the refuge was established in 1908 by Teddy Roosevelt. So that's not to say that all the ranchers in Harney County are, you know, comfortable with the feds um, and two such disgrunt two such disgruntled ranchers were Dwight and Stephen Hammond who had been grazing cattle in Harney County for decades on the land that included the Malheur refuge and in 1994 the BLM and Fish and Wildlife Service retired Dwight Hammond's permit to graze on the refuge land and they attempted to erect a fence to keep out his cattle. And it's important to mention that this doesn't this just wasn't some, you know, the government sticking it to him or something arbitrary. The Hammond cattle were grazing in the refuge wetlands, which if you know about wetlands, you understand that they're extremely important ecosystems for a region's natural health. You know, without wetlands a lot of things go wrong and most things can't be healthy. Um, and the Harney Basin where the refuge is found is a critical part of the Pacific Flyway, which is important for migratory birds and 
and waterfowl especially. So the cattle were, you know, destroying this habitat. And by the way, cattle just demolish um, wetlands and not just in the United States. Wetland degradation around the world has been happening and it is happening because of cattle. Um, they just really do a number on wetlands and it's none of it's good for wildlife. Um, so right now, at this point, we should also remind you that when the federal government, you know, revokes a grazing permit or allotment like they did with the Hammonds, they're required to compensate the ranchers financially. And they did that for the Hammonds. And like we mentioned before in the last episode, it can be kind of subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder whether it's it's fair or not. Um, but we're not, we're not going to talk about that. But regardless, much like the Bundys, the Hammonds were outraged that their allotment was retired. And they just engaged in decades of violence. Um, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that does not sound right. Okay. But regardless, much like the Bundys, the Hammonds were enraged by the retirement of their grazing allotments. And they engaged in decades of violations, unarmed standoffs, and and threats of violence. And they had a surprising number of people in the community supporting them and, and a growing support in the community throughout this time. Because um, remember, it was in 1994 when their allotment got retired. They also started two fires on the refuge in 2001 and 2006, which burned a couple hundred acres um, each time. And one of those fires, according to witnesses, was set to hide evidence of deer poaching. So just as like a side note, people that don't abide by um, federal laws and, and, and the laws that are in place about public land and you know, wildlife and public land in the public trust, there's a lot of times there's poaching involved because they have this um, feeling that they own the land and the, and the whatever is on it, including the wildlife. And like we mentioned in the last episode, the wildlife is held in a public trust in the United States. Um, so people can't own the wildlife, except in Texas. <laughs> and, you know, Poaching is often related to this kind of um, rebellion against against government. Um, mm-hmm. So if it's true that the fires were set to hide evidence of deer poaching, then it's just another example of how wildlife is put at risk by these attitudes um, of entitlement, like I just said. But regardless of their reasons or the fact that the fires started on private land, um, the feds charged them with a fel- with felony arson. And to make a really long and nuanced story short, because that's what this whole story is, it's very yeah. complex. Um, by January 2016, the Hammonds were in prison serving their sentences from these charges. Yeah, so uh, having received word of what happened to the Hammonds, uh, brothers Ammon and Ryan Bundy came out to Oregon with a group of militiamen on January 2nd, 2016, and took over the Mallier National Wildlife Refuge in protest to the BLM. 
making demands that the federal government relinquish the refuge land and cede it to the people of Harney County. Now, they didn't do this in cooperation with the people of Harney County. They just went up there. They took this case, which is which was very similar to the Bundy's. You know, it started in 1994. Bundy's case started in 1993. Um, you know, it was there were a lot of parallels between the two families and the Bundy's. The Bundy brothers just grabbed onto it and decided that this was a good time to make a final stand against the BLM. And so they occupied the wildlife refuge and a, and a month long occupation ensued. So they were there for a month, during which uh, it's important to say that Dwight and Stephen Hammond from prison renounced the occupation and disavowed any relationship to the Bundys. So no matter what their crimes were, they wanted nothing to do with the Bundys. They didn't ask for their support. They didn't agree with this, what they were doing. It was, it was a genuine renouncement. Um, and so this was all even though the Bundys claimed that this was in support of the Hammonds, the Hammonds had nothing to do with it. Yeah, and I just, um, it's it's pretty interesting and, and disturbing how the Bundys and, and people of this um, nature of entitlement, how they often, and this isn't a, a political podcast, so I don't want to say a lot about this, but how they relate, um, you know, exercising constitutional rights and things um, as if people have a constitutional right to do whatever the hell you want Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) and destroy land or whatever. But just like it's such a contrast to the exercises of um, revolution in the United States in the past, you know, just Mm -hmm. thinking about how we even became a country and how this genre of people, you know, try to relate their actions to that. It's it's um, this kind of idea of where the, the Bundy's going to the Hammonds, it, you know, to, you know, rebel against the government or whatever. It's not, even though as much as they would say, it's not the same as, as other um, rebellions or revolutions in our history because, um, you know, you're not this isn't an exercise of your constitutional right at all yeah i i agree and and like you said not to get too political but that's you know that is the point is you know these are um there's a long history behind this and these men consider them and women but it's mostly it's actually mostly men consider you know the second amendment to be the you know the the most important um, part of the Constitution, and actually, the Bundys. If you if you watch, um, if you watch them in on TV, they always have the Constitution in their in their breast pockets and their shirts. They always carry a copy of the Constitution, and they disregard any judicial precedent or you know further administrative precedent, all that stuff. And um, and yeah, so it's it's just this complicated history um, that we won't go into, but you're right. It's just this, this strange sort of, um, entitlement and rebellion that they, they, they believe is, you know, the, uh, you know, the true American way. And it's just, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. And, and it also should be noted that in this particular kind of situation, um, you know, obviously many Americans have issues with 
federal the federal government having too many too much power in certain parts of their life or whatever. But when we're talking about land conservation and the protection of threatened endangered species or you know conservation of species that aren't threatened um the government has a f- legal mandate to to manage the land and the wildlife and so it's just ironic to think that um the th- the federal government is overreaching and having too much power when they're trying to like help our land and our resources. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just, um, it's just really illogical. Um, so, so let's talk about the wildlife that the Bundy's yet again put at risk. So over 320 bird species live in or migrate through the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge every year, including several high-priority or sensitive species like sandhill crane, bobolinks, which are declining, killdeer, seven species of owl, 29 species of waterfowl, which are all both ecologically and economically important. Um, and the refuge itself encompasses over 187,000 acres of habitat for these birds. And research has indicated that the refuge may support up to 66% of the Pacific Flyway's migrating waterfowl population, which is, as that's a huge number for just this one little refuge. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't stop at the birds either, of course. The refuge you know, has pristine lakes and wetlands and this whole hydrologic system that we talked about. It's also home to almost 60 species of mammals, which include bison, pronghorn, pika, 14 species of bats, and even Canada lynx. And then um, several species of reptile and amphibian, which are less studied, 12 native fish species, the invasive carp, whose removal project provides extra income to local fishermen just as a bonus and just overall a really extraordinary amount of biodiversity for a region that's surrounded by semi-arid grassland forest. Um, So given the basin's importance to wildlife, it would be ridiculous to argue that removing all protections and ceding the land to local citizens would be a wise, a wise move. Um, so even without legislative and judicial logic added to the equation, this alone would tell you there was no way the militia occupation at the refuge was going to make anything more than a public stunt for this sovereign citizen cause. It wasn't like they were going to get this land handed over to <laughs> the, the ranchers or something. Yeah. It's just, yeah, illogical. Yeah, and... It- I don't I don't use the word ridiculous a lot because I'm the kind of person who tries to consider cultural, you know, uh, cultural sensitivities and all that stuff. Think about the history of all this and where the Bundys are coming from, all that stuff. But this really was ridiculous. There's just no way their their demands were going to happen. It was and they knew that, too, no matter how much they will say that this was a serious demand. It was really just a publicity stunt um, for the sovereign citizen cause. And in the end, this publicity stunt actually cost a man his life. Um, so which 
this man losing his life basically brought the occupation to an end. Um, but it was it was just so unnecessary. So in February 2016, one of the militiamen lost his life after reaching for his weapon during a traffic stop and being shot dead by the police. So um, it was a police shooting. Uh, it was um, it was on the news. It was it was covered a lot on the news, and people have their own opinions about what happened. But the point is, he lost his life. His name was Lavoy Finicum. He was actually the spokesman for Ammon Bundy. Uh, so he was a charismatic figure in the whole occupation. Most of the militiamen were pretty anonymous during this occupation, but Lavoie Finnicum was front and center. He was on the news a lot doing interviews. So um, this was big news when it happened. And after the shooting, after this man lost his life, uh, a lot of the armed occupiers left the refuge. Um, and after a while, after a couple of days, only the Bundy brothers, Ammon and Ryan, and a few straggling supporters remained. And... We should also mention just pretty much for the majority of their occupation in this refuge. They, I mean, they even ran out of supplies. They were they went online asking people for supplies. Um, they got sent junk by a lot of people who didn't agree with their <laughs> with the occupation. Um, but by the end, um, it was just the Bundy brothers and a few a few militiamen. And by this time, by the end of their occupation, their demands had changed. No surprise. And instead of this being supposedly about the land and the BLM giving the land back to the people, uh, their new demands were that the FBI drop their 2014 charges against the Bundys or else they wouldn't leave the refuge. So in the end, that's what this really was about. <laughs> it was about... And it never, like, this didn't even start having to do with the Bundys. Like, it just pivoted completely from the Hammonds mm -hmm. to the Bundys. Exactly. So, they, you know, by the end, it wasn't even about their supposed support for the Hammonds um, who were, you know, in prison serving their five-year mandatory sentences for federal for federal election charges. Um, in the end, it was, again, about the Bundys. So, of course, this, this demand was just as ridiculous as the last one. There's no way the FBI was just going to suddenly drop charges just because they were holding a wildlife refuge hostage. And meanwhile, uh, Cliven Bundy, who was in Nevada for all of this, he actually flew out to Oregon to support his sons, which was convenient for the FBI, who easily arrested him in Portland on those same charges related to the 2014 standoff. I'm not sure why they waited to arrest him in Portland, but, um, you know, that's what they did. And so he never even made it to, to the Maui National Wildlife Refuge. So finally, on February 11th, 2016, the Malheur occupation ended. And even though I call this a standoff, I should say that it wasn't really much of a standoff. I mean, the 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 local sheriff and the police and the FBI, they didn't really get as involved as they did during the 2014 standoff. In this particular one, it was just a bunch of men sitting on land, on federal land, sitting in these unoccupied buildings and waiting for something to happen. So it wasn't really much of a standoff, um, but of course it did end violently. And the most important thing is it was 40 plus days that the refuge could not be accessed because of them occupying it. That's 40 plus days during which all the sensitive avian, mammalian, and other wildlife went without monitoring, without management, without any remediation if there were any troubles, 40 plus days without invasive carp management. You can't miss a day of that kind of, of, that kind of thing. Like it's, it's ongoing, exhaustive work 
went 40 plus days without it. 40 plus days with the threat of random militiamen trampling all over sedges and grasses and habitat and the, the really critical wetland producing waste and trash that never got picked up because, you know, nobody's there. And just generally disrespecting the land and what it stood for and all the conservation that was supposed to be occurring there. Um, so that's a that's actually a long time. And there are there are many reasons why uh, the feds allowed them to stay there for a long time. Many, many reasons that go back decades. If you think about um, Waco and Ruby Ridge you know, nowadays, that when there's a standoff like this by militiamen, the federal government is really, really careful not to allow it to become a violent thing. And so they usually just wait them out. And that's that's what happened here, um, except for Lavoy Finnicum's death. Gosh, I'm just like imagining I live in that town and, you know, that's my favorite bird watching place. Right. And the wrath you'd have to face <laughs> from me not being able to go bird watching <laughs> for 40 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's actually that's actually a good point, because this is a huge like birder um, refuge. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big place for birders. And especially that time of year in the winter when the waterfowl are migrating yeah. or overwintering. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, not only does it um, interfere with our, you know, public right to the to, you know, to enjoy the land, which is what we're, which is what protected lands are for is also for the public to enjoy it for now and for generations, as they say. Um, not only does it interfere with that, but there's also revenue that comes in from from people um, coming into the refuge. And as much as the Bundys and the Hammonds and a, a few of their supporters will argue that they can't, that um, federal protected lands like this interfere with the local economy because of the ranchers, um, it it's actually the opposite actually that the, the uh, Malheur National Wildlife Refuge actually contributes more to that local economy than than the ranchers do um and and that's just a matter of numbers but um yeah so that's all just um and not all I should say not all not all ranchers supported this in fact it, it was it was a, a gross minority of ranchers who thought that this was a good idea um most of the ranchers just wanted them gone they wanted nothing to do with this they wanted to go about their business yeah, I think it was in the Bundyville podcast where, um, gosh, I forget who it was that said it. It was um, someone who was important when they were talking about the Nevada mm. uh, events that, you know, in reality, if the Bundys and the some of the ranchers that are involved in this stuff, if they're, you know, people tend to project this extreme economic importance on ranching mm -hmm. and she said you know if the, the if these ranching operations went belly up the economy is not going to notice like that's how little they contribute um and i thought that was powerful and and brave of someone to say yeah. because i completely agree um there's just this it's just unsupported uh, narrative that that ranchers are just like the most important part of local communities and that's in some cases that's not true at all and in this case it's not yeah yeah exactly it's for the 
yeah, for the overall economy, um, they don't really make a dent. I mean, and, you know, of course, for local economies, they contribute a bit. But, um, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, so all of this brings us to, to the crux of why we wanted to cover the Bundys versus BLM in the first place. In Nevada, the Mojave Desert tortoise population does not have the luxury to tolerate the impact of cattle and human scoff laws degrading their critical habitat. <laughs> I like that word. So, yeah, dude, I do too. <laughs> um, so whatever you think this ongoing drama is about, and it is, it is ongoing, um, the desert tortoise is right at the middle of it and, you know, was at the beginning of it as well. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a long-established program, the Endangered Species Act, which is proven to be effective in recovering species on the brink of extinction. But in its best success stories, you don't only have federal agencies to credit for the recovery of these animals, of course, but also the care, cooperation, involvement, and interest from the American public, um, which is, I think, a really important point to bring up. Um, in 2016, the federal lands around the Bundy Ranch were turned into Gold Butte National <laughs> Monument, which I'm sure they're just loving. <laughs> so National Monument is actually managed by the National Park Service, so that means it has even stricter um, rules and regulations now than it did when it was BLM land, which mm-hmm. um, I don't think was just done accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the Gold Butte National Monument is actually 300,000 acres of land and was a long overdue victory for the local Paiute Indian nation, um, but also for you know at-risk wildlife like the desert tortoise. And this monument actually may be the last chance for the desert tortoise in the Bunkerville area because a lot of the area is, is ranching community and like we've already gone over it's not good for the tortoise so don't make the mistake of thinking oh it's just one population of many for the desert tortoise because it, it isn't um you know threatened or endangered status on the endangered species act isn't just given out you know willy-nilly by the fish and wildlife service it's a very rigorous and legalistic process Mm -hmm. which when a species does become listed as threatened or endangered you know that it it definitely is because a lot of work has gone into justifying this designation um so this this bunkerville area even though it's just a small part of what we consider the desert tortoises range it is still critical which is why it was designated critical habitat in the first place yeah, exactly. So um, it's, you know, every population is important, um, especially for, you know, uh, a long lived species with, you know, low reproductive rates. Um, so, yeah, it's very important. And um, I don't think I, I, I wrote this in the outline, but um, the Bundys uh, have actually brought um, brought the, the feds to court over the Gold Butte National Monument as well, um, which, we, you know, we all know what the result is going to be of that. Um, they don't stand a chance. But so um, 
Last year, a very famous case dismissal occurred in the 2014 Bundy charges. Um, The case was dismissed because of a Brady violation. And in case you don't know what that is, that means the prosecution withheld evidence, which is a huge, like, that's just a terrible thing to do. It is a mockery of the judicial system when you do that. So the case was dismissed, unfortunately, um, because of that. But um, you can listen to the Bundyville podcast we mentioned earlier to learn all about that case. They cover it really well and, and, and explain what happened there um, with the Bundys getting away with it. Uh, we also will also provide links so you can learn more about what's going on with Clavin, Ammon, and Ryan Bundy now. Um, Cl- or Cliven, Ammon, and Ryan Bundy now. Uh, Cliven is, continues to run his cattle on federal land. And I actually watched an interview with him, I think from two weeks ago, where he said something like, I haven't even heard from the feds and this is my land. So anyway, so that's what's going on with him. And we'll also provide links uh, so you can learn what's going on with Dwight and Stephen Hammond in Oregon if you're interested in that. They are currently in prison serving five-year minimum sentences. There's a whole drama over that as well. And at some point, like I said, we'll, we, we definitely should do uh, an episode on the post-revolutionary war homestead properties and land grabs. Um, there remains a centuries-old tension between private landowners and federal land agencies in the American West especially, and that grudge really is epitomized by the conflict between the Bundys and the BLM. So that's more food for thought. Um, so for now, the desert tortoise is, you know, in okay shape. Um, the wildlife and the habitat of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is okay. And everything has returned back to normal. Um, Next time you hear about an armed militia occupying federal land, and I guarantee it will happen again, especially just with the the pull the Bundys seem to have in this genre of people. Um, Just take a moment to go past these news stories and, you know, the, the primary things that the media is covering and think about the implications for the ecosystems that the federal land is protecting. Um, Because in the end, that's what, you know, like we've said, that's what the federal land is being protected for. That's why it's designated federal land. Um, That's the ultimate purpose. And that's what these federal agencies are legally mandated to do. So it's not the government out to get the people. This is for our benefit and the benefit of, of the future generations. And um, that's, I think, the one thing, well, <laughs> that's many things that the Bundys don't get. But I think that's the that's the number one thing that's at the heart of this issue. It's that the government is doing this for us and for our children and our children's children. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you as, as usual. So feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. You can also email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to hear people's thoughts about this issue. It's a very controversial issue. Uh, it's a very controversial issue. Um, I would be surprised to hear from a conservationist who disagrees with us, but if you do, I would love to hear from you. Or if you're just a casual listener, um, and you have some extra thoughts about all of this, about this situation, about federal land, about the BLM, 
um, we would love to hear from you. So connect with us um, on social media or at our email. You can also visit our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com to listen to more episodes, which you can also find on um, your podcast listening. (laughs) Um, Your podcast listening device. (laughs) It's called a cellular phone. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. Oh, and and in case you missed it a couple weeks ago, um, we're going to a, a bi-weekly schedule for our regular episodes. So next week, um, I'll be doing a, a news, a short news flash episode, and then the following week we'll have a new topic. And so we're going to alternate news and regular episodes from here on out. <laughs> <laughs>